The sermon text for today is Haggai chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. You can find this passage in the Blue Pew Bible on page 1440. Listen as I read God's word. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turns out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why? declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains a ruin while each of you is busy with your own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, and everything else the ground produces, on people and livestock, and on all the labor of your hands." Here ends the reading. Well, that's a positive way to start a book, isn't it? That's good. If you don't have this text in front of you this morning, really, let me encourage you to grab a Bible and, and open up, because we're going to be looking at some uh, closer parts of the text and um, it's, it's not going to be easy as we go through Haggai, but, but uh, for the next five weeks, we're going to be spending some time in this book, and uh, I'm excited about it. I think it's going to be really great. There's a few reasons I think that Haggai is going to be such an awesome text to get into. The first reason has to do with the genre. Right? Many of us are, are really familiar with you know, the, the letters of Paul, right? We have the book of Romans, right? We're familiar with the gospels. We're familiar with uh, some of the, the narratives of scriptures, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy, right? Joshua. But most of us are not quite as familiar with the prophets, especially the, the minor prophets, the, the smaller texts like, like Haggai and, and Zephaniah and Obadiah, right? So I'm excited about this. I'm also excited because the setting of the text is kind of unique, Right? This, is, this is not the setting of, of, of Jesus in the Gospels. This is not the setting of, of Israel during the Exodus. This is kind of a, a vague and a, a obscure and less well-known time in Israel's history that, that I think is just as important 
And so we're going to dive into that. But finally, the themes of this book, as we'll get into, I'm not going to give way to too much of those, I think are uniquely relevant to us as we're seeking to navigate this time in history, seeking to navigate our culture, seeking to navigate what it looks like to be faithful Jesus followers even here and now. But like I had said, Haggai is, is not going to be easy. I'm, I'm going to be real with all of you. And, and yet here's the invitation that I want to put on us. I want to invite you for the next five weeks as we, as we go through this, to invest yourselves to fully understanding, to fully ingesting all of the nuances and complexities of this book, to really dive in with your, your heads and your hearts. And, and if we do that, I'm pretty confident that God will use this well. And I would encourage that to, to be your prayer over the next few weeks. God, how might you want to use this book of Haggai to shape me, to, to call me into this season that we are in now? But I, I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be myself and, and Benjamin, one of our elders, who are going to be diving into this book with you. And uh, I've got, we've got a great team that's working together uh, as we're prepping sermons and digging through this text. So I'm grateful for them as well. But let's pray, and then we will dive into week one uh, of Haggai. So would you pray with me? Father, as we begin Haggai this morning, we desire that you move in us to your glory. We ask that you would walk with us through this series with the intimacy that you once walked with Adam and Eve. We pray, Lord, for clarity of thought. We pray for conviction of heart. And we pray for empowerment of our hands as we press into your word both today and in the weeks to come. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, I'm going to start with a a question for us this morning. The question is this. What do we do? when it feels like everything around us is falling apart? How are we supposed to respond when it seems as if the foundations that we have built our life upon are in fact crumbling? Where are we supposed to hold on to when the things that we have held to for comfort in years past are no longer there for us to hold to or they feel like they are being taken away? What do we do when it feels like everything is falling apart? I think this is a question or a feeling, a sentiment that many of us, if not in in many years past, have had to deal with over the past few years with, with more or less severity. We've seen certain things happen in our world. We've seen a cultural swing kind of happen where where the the general populace does not hold to the same uh, traditional Judeo-Christian values that many of us have held to. We've seen the pandemic hit us, which has kind of rocked our world on a global scale. It has, made, it has made much of us wrestle with this idea of our own mortality, right? We've seen other things happen. We, we have seen relationships that we have had for years get destroyed. We've watched them disintegrate over issues that we never thought would come between our friendships. And over really strange platforms like Facebook and Twitter and other social media things. And this doesn't even include some of the other dynamics that we're dealing with, the the political dynamics, the the schooling dynamics, the supply chain issues. Like there are a ton of things going on in our world, right? And and for some of us, I know that I've felt this over the past few years, that I almost feel like I'm living in an alien world. I'm like, I can't believe this is actually the time and the world that I live in. Like, how, how does this even make sense? I never would have imagined in a million years that this would have happened. But the reality is, is, is that we all go through moments in life where we're forced to kind of wrestle with, with this question that's really, really important for us. It's, it's where do I go from here? 
what am I supposed to do now? As we kind of get into this book of Haggai, as we're just starting out this morning, there's a lot to be dug into. As we get into this, we're, we're meeting with a group of exiles that have come back to their homeland, except that homeland doesn't feel like home anymore to them. They too feel like they are in an alien world. And in order to appreciate this fully, I kind of, I want us to get into their headspace. Like we need to walk in their shoes. We need to get their heads and their hearts if we're going to fully appreciate the dynamic going on between them and the Lord throughout this book. So, so just imagine this with me. You, use that imagination of yours, okay? Imagine that you are an Israelite around the year 600 BC, okay? And you're living in the, the kingdom of Judah, You're trying to establish a life for yourself and and for your family. And there's two things that are really crucial to that life. One of those is your community's uh, relationship with Yahweh, the God of Israel. And the other one is the king of your nation from the line of David. Now, some of the kings that you've had over the years are, are better and worse, but you have a king and you look to them nonetheless. But what you find is there's a problem in your land. And the problem is that there is wavering obedience not only in your own heart, but with regard to your family, your friends, the community that you know, and sometimes the king himself. And there are these people called prophets, and they're telling you, the Lord is saying, if you do not turn back to him in covenant faithfulness, then your nation will crumble. And yet nobody listens. People go on their their daily lives, not believing that this could actually happen. And to a few years later, there's a nation that's called Babylon and they come knocking at your door. And within a few years, they destroy your nation. They trash your your capital city and they raise your temple to the ground. And then they take you and your friends and they march you off to a foreign land for the next 50 to 70 years. After that time, there's a new superpower on the scene and they are called Persia. And Persia takes over Babylon and allows you and your friends to come back. You're now much older. Come back to your land. They're not like Babylon who scatters people to foreign nations. They, they allow you to go back to your promised land, but they don't do it because they're extra kind. They do it because they believe this is a better way to assert control over the people. And so you have these hopes that we're gonna reestablish our life, that we are gonna see God reign through his Davidic king once and for all, except you get there and everything is destroyed. Your world is trashed. Different people have moved in to your homes. And when you try and start building the temple again, you get some real pushback from the locals. They're afraid that the king is going in Persia is gonna see what's happening and he is gonna commit a genocide for your people. And so you feel the tension of the real danger that's there. You feel the the weight of, oh, this is such a big building project to redo this temple. And so you and your friends stop. And you stop for the next 15 years. That temple remains unfinished. When we dive into Haggai this morning, this is where their heads and their hearts are at. This is where we find ourselves 15 years after they stopped that temple. They're looking at the state of their city and of their nations, their relationship to the nations around them, and they are really screwed up, and they are trying to figure out what God is up to and asking a question of how am I supposed to serve in the midst of this? 
what is this? How do we do anything with this? And what we're gonna see throughout this book, and especially today, is that in God's great mercy, he calls them to a place of radical obedience. And he doesn't do this because he's a slave driver. He does this because his love and his mercy for his people are just as radical. Today, the main thing we're gonna focus on is this point right here, that God wants to be the central desire of his people. He wants to be the centerpiece of everything that they hold dear. So let's start diving into these first four verses as we have a a piercing question for discouraged people. We start by seeing that in the second year of King Darius, the first day of the sixth month, so in that 15-year period, the word of the Lord comes to the prophet Haggai, to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest. And this is what the Lord says. These people say... The time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai, and this is what he says again. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in paneled houses while this house remains in ruins? So the date is somewhere in late August in the year 520 BC. This whole book of Haggai is gonna take place over a period of less than four months. And we're introduced to three characters, Haggai the prophet, Joshua the priest, and Zerubbabel the governor. And they are gonna be very significant for us as we go through this text. So please keep them in mind, okay? Haggai is the the Lord's mouthpiece. If you want a definition for what a prophet is, it is the Lord's mouthpiece, the one who speaks on behalf of God himself. We also meet Joshua, and Joshua is gonna be the one who is responsible for reinstituting religious expression among the people of God. And then there's Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel is unique. And he's unique because he is not only the governor of the people, he's unique because he is the descendant from David's line, the beloved king of God's people, the king that God said he would establish a dynasty that would never end. And so as we get through, get deeper into this book, we're gonna see there's real expectations placed upon this man. But right in the beginning of our text this morning, we are encountering an issue. We encounter an issue that not only are the, the leaders of the nation, but the people at large, they're dragging their feet on finally finishing this temple. And so God says, is it right for you to work on your own houses when my house is still left in the dust, when it is still left in ruins? Now, in order to understand the weight of that question, I think we need to understand the, the, the weight of the temple, the value of the temple. Because the temple, also known as God's house, was not just beneficial for these people, it was essential for them. It was the center of not only their religious life, but because there was no separation of, of church and state as we know it today, it was the center of their entire life. Their whole way of life centered on God's presence being among them in a similar way that many of us might be familiar with where where it was essential that God's presence be dwelling with Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis 1 and 2. That's what this temple was an expression of, that kind of intimacy. And so without the temple, not only can the people not worship rightly, they can't really go through any area of their life well. That's why this exile was a big deal because they were ripped away from this temple that was destroyed. So they didn't know, like, how do we even go forward as a nation when this essential thing has been taken away from us? And so we see that God's presence is supposed to be their highest value. And the issue that the text reveals is instead of honoring the Lord as being that important, 
they would rather finish their own houses. And yet before we're too hard on them, I want to call us back to getting into their headspace again. Think about what's happening. They are coming back to a place with minimal leadership, with minimal resources, threats from locals, and some of them probably didn't even have decent houses to live in. And guys, we need to recognize that these are not petty needs, right? These are not small needs that are going unmet for these people. These are real tangible things. And so I think it's worth recognizing that that this desire for food and safety and shelter and community, those are not inherently bad. Those are actually good desires that these people have. And so this should lead us to a place where we're considering, is the issue that God is confronting actually about just a building? And as many of you would expect, the answer is no, right? There's more going on here. Because God is not being petty, right? He's not just wishing that they would finish his building. This is a case where their refusal to finish the temple is actually revealing their hearts. It's revealing what is going on among them. They are showing that they would rather have what is good, maybe food or housing for the moment, rather than have the one who is great. They're showing that in the immediacy of their lives, in the hustle and bustle of trying to, to keep up with everything, they've lost sight of the fact that God is their ultimate provider. And so they're trying to set up their own lives instead of turning to the one who can actually give them that abundant life. Now, we're not in the same situation. We're not in a place where we are uh, trying to rebuild the second temple, as it were. But we, too, have to juggle the immediacy of life with our desires and, and, and our needs and what that means for us to be faithful to God amidst all of that, right? We have desires and needs that we really want to be met. We have dreams that we hope God willing are fulfilled. But the question that they have to wrestle with, that we have to wrestle with as well is this, have we forgotten that God is foundational to those desires being truly satisfied in the end? Because just like this crew, we are so capable of replacing God with ourselves, with things, with our dreams, with other people. We are so capable of having our desires and our needs become the ends in and of themselves. But that's not what God wants for us. What our needs and desires are built into us for is so that they can point us to God, the one who can actually satisfy fully those desires and needs. I think C.S. Lewis puts this tension really well in The Weight of Glory when he describes it like this. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. That's what is going on in this text. It's a case of competing desires where they have a desire to preserve their community, 
to see it flourish, to see it grow. And what God confronts in them is not that those desires are inherently bad. What God confronts in them is that instead of establishing his temple, which will lead to God's presence, which will lead to those needs being met, they would rather try and establish their own sense of well-being. And the question and the thing that God addresses in this text, especially in this next section here, is whether we can actually have a life of true well-being apart from his presence at all. So let's look at this next part of the text, verses 5 through 11. I've labeled it the return on their investment. Here's what the Lord says to them now. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but aren't warm. You earn wages, only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty? Because of my house, which remains in ruin, while each of you is busy with his own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their due. And the earth, its crops, I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, and everything else that the ground produces, on people and livestock, and on all the labor of your hands. So to put it bluntly, God confronts this idea of whether what they are doing is actually working. And the answer clearly that we see in this text is no, right? You drink, you don't have your fill. You put on clothes but aren't warm. You earn wages, but you put them into a purse with holes. What they are doing is not working. But what I want us to to do is make sure we're catching the big point, that all of this is clearly happening for a reason. Their struggle, their suffering, if you will, is supposed to be a red flag to them. They're supposed to see that what they are putting in is not what they're getting out that the efforts that they're putting into providing for themselves are not resulting in what they had expected. They're supposed to see that something or someone, as it were, is interfering in the process. And very quickly we see that God says, I am the one who is intervening. I am the one who is causing this, right? Look with me at verse 11, right? Therefore, because, because of you, the heavens have withheld their due and the earth its crops, I called for a drought, Right? In verse 9, you expected much, but see, it turned out to little. What you brought home, I blew away. We have to recognize as we're looking at this that God is not doing this out of the blue. Okay? I don't want us to look at this and see the Lord throwing a temper tantrum because that's not what the text is suggesting. He's not seeing that they're forgetting to build the house, neglecting to build the house. And he's upset, and so he, he holds back some things. He smites them, if you will. That's not what's going on here. What's happening is that they are reaping exactly what they have sown in covenant with their God. Let me explain what I mean by that. When we get into the first five books of the Bible, when we get into those texts, we see really clear that Israel as a nation, these people entered into a covenant, a, a partnership, a deal, a relationship, all of those things are kind of wrapped up into covenant. They entered into that with God and it was a covenant of blessings and curses where God said, I am a good king and I will care for you. And if you obey me, I will protect you. I will meet all of your needs 
And I will be your God and you will be my people and you will be effective for my glory to the nations around you. On the other hand, though, he says, if you neglect me, if you disobey me, then I will give you over to your sin. I will allow brokenness to enter into your circumstances and you will not be effective for the mission that I have called you to. So blessings and curses. I wanna look at just a couple passages that kind of summarize this curse dynamic that the people of Judah are experiencing here. One is Deuteronomy 28, where it says this, however, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees that I am giving you today, all these curses will come on you and overtake you. You will be cursed in the city and cursed in the country. Your basket and your kneading trough will be cursed. The fruit of your womb will be cursed and the crops of your land and the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks. Likewise, in Leviticus 26, this kind of language, it's actually very similar to Haggai. When God says, when I cut off your supply of bread, 10 women will be able to bake your bread in one oven and they will dole out the bread by weight. You will eat, but you will not be satisfied. So what we're seeing in the text is not a dynamic of poor Israel. God is mistreating them. That's not what's happening. We see God's covenant people coming back to the covenant land that he had given them and refusing to obey the covenant that he had made with them, completely disregarding it. So what's happening is they're receiving God's just punishment for their negligence of that covenant. So we can respond in one of two ways to this. We could look at God and say, God, you are a moral monster for holding back these things from your people. But I don't think the text supports that. And I think that that way of thinking would have been foreign to the people of Judah in these circumstances. I think what is grounded in the text is an understanding that God is trying to tell them something. He's trying to communicate. He is disciplining them in order to ultimately help them, not to hurt them. He is seeing something that they are missing in the busyness of trying to take care of themselves. And he is trying to communicate with them that I have a better way. So what is he trying to tell them? That's the question. What is he trying to communicate with them? Is he trying to communicate to them that if they do what he wants, that he will give them what they want? No. I don't think this is kind of a prosperity gospel dynamic where he'll bless them if they obey and if they don't obey, it's because they don't have enough faith and they're not being loyal enough. I don't think that's what's happening here. Is the dynamic such that this building called the temple is more important to God than the well-being of his people? Well, of course not. Right? We see that, that God cares deeply for people throughout the scriptures. What's happening is that God is communicating the, the, the main theme, the heart of this text that we're gonna see throughout Haggai. And it's that God, God's presence is essential to the well-being of his people. It is not optional. They are missing out on something significant if he is not among them. You see, the people of Judah, they were looking for something that they would never have found in their own strength. They were looking for wholeness and abundant life through their own efforts. And God realizes that will never happen. They would have effectively tried until they died, if you wanna put it that way. They were failing to heed the fact that unless God was among them, they would ultimately fail. So where they think they are progressing by building their houses and establishing their life, God sees that they are ultimately regressing. They are going backwards. We need to understand that this is an act of mercy 
on God's behalf, that apart from him intervening, they would have went down the same path and they've been down that path before. It's the same path that led them to exile in the first place. So we see they might be seeking to survive, but God has a heart to see them thrive. And that will never happen unless he is among them. That's what the temple is about. The temple is not just about a building. The temple is a symbol and a means by which God's people will express to God their need to know him and be with him. And where God will demonstrate that he desires to know them and be with them as well. What we see throughout this text is that God zealously desires relationship with his people. He doesn't want it for his own good as if he were lacking something. It's something that is born out of love because he is love. That he would prefer life with us rather than life without us. That he desires relationship with us because he cares for us. The problem this morning is not with God's motives. It's with our response and with Judah's response. It's the issue that that we all face, including the people here, but even us today, that we oftentimes prefer the counterfeit. We would prefer the counterfeit God. We would prefer the life of seeking self-sufficiency instead of seeking dependence on God. We would prefer to strive after our needs and our own desires on our own terms rather than God's desires on his terms. We have this life of rejecting the God who, who provides life to all of us. It's a life that the text helps us see that if we pursue in selfishness is not actually life at all. And what we see is that apart from God's intervention, we will continue down that path just like they would have. And we will ultimately destroy ourselves and we will destroy the world around us. That is, unless God does something. And if the scriptures tell us that just as we see with Israel, God goes to great lengths in order to reclaim his people to himself. He is really dealing with, wrestling with his people here of their desire, of his desire to dwell among them and their lack of desire to have relationship with him. This is an issue that characterizes them. It's an issue that characterized all of their ancestors and it's an issue that characterizes all of humanity. But we remember in the gospel that less than 500 years after this, God did indeed come to dwell among his people except it was in a way that they nor us would have ever expected. It was in the person of Jesus. When we look at Jesus, we see a greater temple. We see God taking on flesh for his people. We see him living a life that we could never live, being who we could and would never be. And yet it's him who gives his life for us. He allows himself to be executed because of our brokenness. And yet three days later, he rises, validating not only who we claim to be, but that through him, we can be restored to God and we can be reconciled to his family. The scriptures tell us that Jesus initiated a new type of covenant, a covenant that was that signed in his blood, that was not dependent upon our ability to obey, but the fact that he had already obeyed for us. It's not a covenant where we get what we deserve, but where he got what we deserved and we get what we we didn't deserve. We get grace. We get his righteousness imputed to us. In Haggai, we see that Israel experienced the covenant curses of God because they rejected his desire to dwell among them. And yet in Jesus, we remember that he experienced the covenant curses for us so that ultimately we could be blessed with God's presence forever. 
The invitation that we have is to simply trust in him, to, to follow him, to believe in him for who he is and what he has done. And the, the blessing and the promise of that is not only forgiveness of sins, which is amazing in and of itself, but that just as God desired to dwell among the people here in Haggai this morning, that he in the person of the Holy Spirit would come to dwell inside us. And that changes everything. His spirit makes us into the people that we could never be, people that reflect God's goodness to one another and to our world. The spirit changes our hearts. He makes us into a people who love God faithfully and love each other fully. And so as we come to the table today, I, I wanna ask you to consider something. Throughout the book of Haggai, there's gonna be this theme that runs through it, that, that God through Haggai asks the people to consider things. The NIV translates it as give careful thought to your ways. This will come up again in the book of Haggai. And so as we go through it, whether it's me or Benjamin, every time we come to the table for the next five weeks, we're gonna ask you to consider something. The Hebrew is literally set your hearts upon something. So today I wanna ask you to consider the nearness of God. As we come to the table, consider the nearness of God that in Jesus and by his spirit, we have intimacy with God that is unmatched. We are brought into a relationship of, of love and acceptance like we have never known. And we get to partake in a relationship that not only brings us joy, but actually transforms us, that changes us from the inside out to be the people that God desires us to be and to be the people that our world needs in exactly this moment. So as we come to the table, realize that in Christ, we have been brought near to God and God has been restored in relationship to us. So as we take the elements, I want us to realize the great cost it took in order to make that a reality. Let's take a moment of silence and then we will pray together. Merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought and in word and in deed by the things that we have done and by the things that we have left undone. We confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart, mind, and strength and we have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. Lord, we confess this morning that in the busyness and the immediacy of life and the needs and the desires that we have that it's really easy to forget you that it's easy to forget that those desires and needs are actually meant to point us towards you, the one who can fulfill every need and desire of our heart. Lord, we are grateful this morning that you, have, that you came to dwell among us in the person of Jesus. We are grateful this morning for what Jesus has done and the fact that through him, we have become the temple where you dwell. So Lord, we ask your forgiveness for the ways that we have not remembered that. We ask your forgiveness for the ways that we have not lived in consistency with that truth. So Lord, please forgive what we have been. Would you help us amend what we are and direct what we shall be so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways all to the glory of your name. And all of God's people said, amen.